Our Old Testament reading for today comes from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Our sermon text this morning, we're continuing in First Peter. And just to sort of preface uh, our reading this morning uh, and the sermon this morning, uh, it's the summer, and in the spring I said that I was going to preach uh, a series dealing with politics, sort of the politics of Jesus this summer. And uh, I did not do that. Um, and instead, I prayerfully sought the Lord to help me as I move through the Word of God in First Peter, wherever I felt that Scripture speaks into the cultural moment we're living in, to let it speak, which means that I'm not sort of like forcing, um, you know, forcing the issue in my weekly sermons. I'm letting God's word speak, and if I see something that I think is relevant to what we're experiencing in our culture, and so I think and I hope over the last few weeks you've seen some of that. Uh, again, it's not something that I say, okay, what, what political angle can I talk about this morning, but if I see something and I say, well, um, that, that's got some connection to what's, what's happening, because uh, if you're like me, uh, boy, the political landscape is, it's moving quick, and our world is just... Um, uh, the, the ground underneath us is shifting uh, in a way that I certainly have never experienced in my lifetime, where it felt like it, the, you know, political trends or just cultural trends took longer. Now, it's just every couple of years, the, the entire um, sort of our, our world, our culture is sort of like remade in some new image, and we're all sort of grappling to grab onto the, gar the handrails. And, where are we? What is happening in our society around us. And so uh, just I say that just by way to um, give you a preview into where, where my heart is as I move through the book of 1 Peter. And as we've talked about, Peter is, we've titled it, Resident Aliens, the Church in Exile. Um, and this is a phrase that Peter uses often to refer to Christians in the first century because we often feel like we're strangers in a strange land, even though we may have grown up here and lived here our whole lives. Um, because the gospel of Christ alienates us from our culture in many ways. Uh, we are part of the culture, we know the lingo, and at the same time we are separate from it in some ways because we're a called out people, and God's people are a contrast community. So just keep that in mind as we read through our passage this morning. In 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, this is the word of God. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires 
to love life and see good days. In other words, if you want to live the good life. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Father, we pray for the illumination of the Spirit to guide us this morning through this passage. Convict our hearts and convince us of your truth and let us leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, Wednesday was the three-year anniversary of the passing of my father. And uh, I marveled, I was talking with uh, my mom the other day that my father never had an email account. It seems so bizarre. Uh, even in this day, this day and age, that like even just a couple years ago, like someone could have lived their life without ever having an email. My father never had an email. And he was never on social media either. And I think the internet for him was uh, just kind of a novelty. He didn't have a whole lot of interest in it. Um, I know uh, in his office, my father was a pastor back in California, and in his office he had a printout of... Uh, just you know, huge waves, like a, like a storm in the middle of the ocean. And he just thought it was an illustration of God's sort of handiwork. But that was it. Uh, not a whole lot of interaction on the internet, which is weird for us because today we rely so heavily on the internet, don't we? The internet was originally designed as an open and democratic platform for, for all people. It was, it was made for the user. But over time, big tech and the social media giants in bed with corporations developed what we call now algorithms. So that advertisers and content providers control what people look at and try to funnel every search into either a consumer transaction or some type of ideological you know, pigeonhole. Coders found a way to identify what we like through our viewing habits and then feed us more and more and more and more of it. And so while you may think that you get on the internet and search what you want to search, you are often following the breadcrumbs that are left for you by people behind the scenes. There, there are suggested things you should look at, and it, you, may, you may have seen this, that's suggested for you. And you go, oh. You click on that, uh, which is like the worst thing you can do, <laughs> really. But it's something we do. We just sort of like follow the breadcrumbs. And so through our viewing habits, we are sort of trapped in a feedback loop from everything to bath soaps to political identities. And the last several years have, has seen our nation divided in a way that... Uh, Few of us have ever experienced before. We are more divided than we ever have been as a nation. And so much of it has to do with the extreme polarization caused by these market-driven algorithms on the internet. And it's really created massive problems even for the church. And most of us do not even realize what's happening to us. It's insidious. It's subtle. We don't realize it's happening to us. We form deeply entrenched opinions and ideological alliances, 
And then we go out to live our lives seeking others who side with us. And that even happens in the churches that we attend or the churches that we choose. And so in this milieu, the church just becomes another place to reinforce our own ideas. And if the church doesn't, we move on to somewhere that does so we can sort of stay in the feedback loop. Again, it's not something we're conscious, conscious of, but we do this. I know of a church that split over their differences just recently about how to handle COVID. The pastor is a former classmate of mine from seminary. I have not kept in contact with him. A seminary professor that I do keep in contact with told me about his church, and he said they split right down the middle. Half the church got up and walked out over how to handle COVID. Now, I don't know what side it was, you know, but the idea that something like that could split a church right down the middle speaks to what I've been talking a little bit about, about how divided we are and about how entrenched our opinions are. And it's a sort of sign of our times that we're living in a time where we are seeking to go about to reinforce those commitments we have to all these different ideas. But is this really what it means to be a Christian exile? Is it really the way we ought to behave? And I suspect most of you would say, no, that's not the way we ought to behave. Well, as far as Peter is concerned, our lives should epitomize certain character attributes that the watching world should look on and say, I want to live that life. Uh, I heard someone recently say that Christians are supposed to influence the influencers. You know, nowadays, it's all about, you know, you can make a career, apparently, being an internet influencer. Uh, you know, does anyone, does everyone know what I'm talking about? Like, like an 18-year-old, you know, puts a TikTok video dancing and just spits these videos out. And, you know, in six months, they're making $8 million a year because advertisers realize that they've got their own little internet program. You click on so-and-so's account because you like watching them do you know, to shuffle or to dance. And I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of like befuddled by this, right? And you have all these like young people putting out content and they're called internet influencers or Instagram influencers or whatever. But from Peter's point of view, Christians are supposed to essentially influence the culture by a set of character attributes that we ought to exhibit that the world looking on should, ought to say, that's attractive. And he gets into it a little bit here in 1 Peter 3.8. And this first point is really just attractive Christian attributes in a world that is often chaotic and filled with anxiety. And look at what he says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, none of that's controversial. If you're reading it, you're probably, you know, oh, you know, yeah, that's great. Be nice, essentially, is what it looks like, but it's deeper than that. If you really pay attention to what it says there, he's, the, the idea of unity of mind is harmony, right? He's saying, look, the world may be chaotic, but you as the people of God ought to, to the best of your ability, live in a kind of harmony that is not found anywhere else or that is uncommon, a unity of mind. Sympathy, love, compassion, humility. What does it mean to live in harmony with one another? 
Well, it means that we, even when we disagree on things, and let me just say this, it doesn't mean that because we all sort of share a faith in God that we ought to agree on everything or that we have to agree. I mean, that, that seems impossible, right? That, that we would all have the exact same opinion on everything. Now, what we try to do is we try to have unity in our faith and in our beliefs, but we differ on some, you know, minor issues, but we agree on the big things, but we may disagree on a lot of peripheral issues, right? How to handle COVID is one of them. Our politics is another, our view of sort of the way economics work in the world. And that's okay that we disagree on those things. We don't have to have absolute agreement. But what Peter is arguing is, is that we have unity of mind, that we're united to the best of our ability. And that means it takes work to continue to maintain a bond of sort of fellowship and peace with someone who may differ with you on some serious issues. An example of that is there are people in this church who are pacifists and pro-Second Amendment people, right? There are people in this church who differ on a lot of different political issues, uh, especially going on right now. Even last year, as all of the riots and different things going on in, in our cities, and as I talked to people in our church, there were people who had different views. And one of the things I try not to do is I try not to get up here and share my opinions. I try to proclaim the word of God and realize that there is freedom that we have to form certain opinions as much as I think your opinion may be wrong. <laughs> there are some, there's freedom and liberty that we have. And I think Peter recognizes that, that, that we're, not, we're all individuals, right? But corporately we belong to the body of Christ. And so we are striving and working for a kind of unity. A kind of unity that glorifies God, a kind of unity that unites us one to another, a kind of unity that speaks to the culture around us that is so divided. And I think that, this is just my opinion, but I think that churches that argue for that kind of nuance probably do not get very large. I think the largest churches in America are the churches that have planted a flag in one camp or the other, and I'm going to tell you why. Because it's easier to do that. It's easier to say, this is our camp, this is who we are, we're not those guys. So if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in this, on this side, come on over. And the, same, the other side does the exact same thing. And so I think to articulate a true sort of like gospel-driven grace, it means messiness. It's messy to bring, bring people together who differ. It's messy to articulate nuance on hot-button issues where people are deeply entrenched or have deep conviction over issues. It's, it's not easy to do. And if you really read the gospel of Jesus, if you really read scripture, I believe you'll find yourself having to, to be very nuanced, even in, even in the convictions you have. Again, it's the, what, what each sort of side offers is a cohesive system. And it's easier to do that because it takes sort of the, a lot of the thought out of it. It's, this is, this is where we stand. And I'm not even talking politics. I'm just, I'm just saying in general, this is how we're wired as human beings. And the gospel calls us to live in the messiness of approaching people who, in love, who may not agree with you on issues. And so right out of the gate, Peter argues that we ought to have a unity of mind to live in harmony with one another the best we can, especially when we disagree. 
Now, how do we do that? That's one of the questions. Well, over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the idea of submission and submitting to others and yielding to others who have authority over us, but also as, as an emblem of Christ's, reflecting Christ's own submission. We submit to one another. And of course, there are limitations. We've talked about that these last few weeks. There are limitations to yielding to others. There are limitations to yielding to government. There are limitations to yielding to employers. There are limitations in a marriage to the kind of submission that goes on. But generally, our attitude is that we are yielding to others out of love. <clears throat> the second thing he talks about is sympathy. He calls it uh, having sympathy for one another. And Hebrews describes Christ as our high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. A popular word today is empathy, right? And the idea of empathy is that, you know, you're, you don't just feel sorry for somebody, but you actually are entering into an experience. But this is sort of part of the essence of Christian love is to have sympathy and compassion for people. It means a readiness to rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. When one member of the body suffers, the other members suffer with them. And if you've ever cut your thumb, you can feel your heartbeat throbbing in your finger. And your entire body pays attention, doesn't it? I mean, that, that's a design from God. And it's also an illustration of how the body of Christ ought to work. When one member is cut or hurts, the whole body pays attention. So there's this concept of sympathy. Next, he says, brotherly love, which communicates the idea that those who follow Christ are a family, that we love each other like family. And we all have the same Father, God. Jesus Christ has brothered us, so to speak, in the gospel. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And so we try to maintain the bond of family as believers. Now, I realize that family relationships for many of us is complicated, isn't it? Some of us aren't talking to loved ones. Some of us have very complex relationship with our parents, uh, childhood trauma, different things we're heard about. And I was talking to someone just yesterday over lunch about how kids don't forget their childhood experiences. And sometimes they bring things up to their parents and mom and dad will say, when did that happen? Right? But you remember when you were seven years old and you, and you can say, no, this, this did happen. And it hurts when they deny it, right? And I have, to, I have adult children now and my kids will, you know, they, they feel like I was, you know, I don't know, maybe I was harsher and sensitive. I, I feel like when I was a young dad, I, you know, I was, I, I, I was really sarcastic. And now my kids, who are, one of my daughters is an adult now, you know, she's like the queen of sarcasm. And I recognize she got it from me. But, but this idea that we are trying hard to maintain a bond of sort of like family love between us. Uh, and this is what the body of Christ is. It means that your brother, your sister isn't perfect. And sometimes we hurt each other and sometimes we do things to each other that, uh, that's painful. But we don't just destroy or walk away from a relationship because there's a painful interaction. We work through those things. And, and this is part of Peter's vision for the people of God, living as Christian exiles in the world. Because in the world, people don't do that. If someone offends you, 
uh, and you have the ability, you just walk away from that relationship. You can just sort of torch that relationship and move on. But that is not what we're called to do as the family of God. We're called to work through those difficulties. He instructs us to have a tender heart, which means be compassionate to one another with a soft heart, a tender heart, not a hard heart. To show compassion toward one another in the same way that God has had compassion on us as sinners. We're slow to judge one another and we're quick to forgive because we care for one another. And sometimes that the hardest thing to do is to forgive someone when they've grieved you. And then there's humility. Uh, someone once said, do you know what the hardest part of humility is? Being humble. This is really what the Bible calls being poor in spirit. We're not proud, we're not arrogant, we're not haughty. And sometimes the only way you can be humble, if you are unable to humble yourself, is for your pride to be crushed. And some of you right now are experiencing your pride being crushed. Maybe God is crushing your pride right now. Rejoice if that's what you're going through because the fruit of that is Christ-likeness. The cross was the ultimate act of humility. Now, why do we do all of these things? Because the Christian calling is to be a blessing to others. Now, how do we bless others? Well, one of the ways that Peter envisions the people of God being a blessing to the world around them is through non-retaliation. Look at the next verse, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Uh, they say vengeance is a dish best served cold. And depending on how you're wired, uh, you might be someone who likes taking vengeance. But the imperative here is for us not to treat people in the way that they treat us when they mistreat us. And this is something you can't do if you sort of always see yourself as a victim. Or if you're in the habit of holding grievances or holding a grudge, right? Some of us are like that. Someone wrongs us and we hold on to it. And, you know, it, it damages us, but in some ways it feels kind of good to hold on to a grudge when we've been wronged. And even though it's the best thing for us to let go of it, sometimes it's hard to do that. Because it, there's, there's a kind of uh, gratification we feel, even if only in our heart, holding on to a grudge. Uh, so you've got to at some point stop seeing yourself as a victim. Do people mistreat or victimize you? Sometimes, sure. But the gospel neutralizes offenses and it turns them into opportunities for love. And if you think about what the gospel of Jesus is, what Christ's own life was, his whole life was absorbing offense and grievance and not repaying it. Right? On the cross, Father, forgive them 
for they know not what they do. There's a place in the New Testament where Jesus said, I could presently call down a legion of angels to avenge me, right? But Jesus' own model uh, is non-retaliation. And this is a uniquely Christian idea. Now, it's spread outside of sort of Christian ideas, and that's great. It's good that people who are either atheists or non-Christians have embraced this idea, but if it exists in the world, it exists because of the gospel of Jesus. I mean, it's been 2,000 years we've been, we've been working on this idea now, right, of non-retaliation, that when someone offends you, you don't immediately fire back with the same sort of grievance or offense. Now, let me go a little deeper here on this issue of non-retaliation because we live at a time right now where it's seen as moral to take vengeance, right? The, the, the slightest infraction, you are totally justified in completely assassinating someone's character or canceling them or whatever the case may be, right? I mean, uh, um, a... Um, a uh, Barna research poll demonstrated recently that people under a certain age in our culture are more likely to be vindictive and less likely to, to forgive because that's a sort of grievance narrative and culture we're cultivating. And a lot of this has to do with social media. And um, experts on, like Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, talk a lot about this, that social media really catapulted the sort of the grievance industry or the sort of grievance culture we live in, where the slightest offense or the slightest grievance gives a person permission to completely retaliate. But it's a completely non-Christian idea. The essence of the gospel is non-retaliation because the essence of the gospel is love. And that means that sometimes it's, it's difficult, right, uh, to absorb grievance and offense, but it's what we're called to do. And this idea of non-retaliation applies to politics and work and family and friendship. And what's the reason why this is such a good word for you is because your nature and my nature is to do just the opposite. It's to retaliate. That's, our, that's a part of our sort of fallen, broken, sinful nature is to retaliate against people when they do you wrong. Uh, and often the only difference between the rich and the poor in retaliation is the former's access to legal recourse. And so we may, we may be thinking that Jesus is simply saying not to commit acts of violence or something like that against someone, but there are other ways that we retaliate against people. How do educated and affluent people retaliate? We sue people. <laughs> right? We say... Um, <clears throat> Someone really, really wrongs us, we say, I'm not going to punch you, but you'll hear from my lawyer, <laughs> right? And there's a time for that, right? There's a time for legal action. But, you know, uh, maybe we should be a little bit more sympathetic towards people who do commit acts of violence because that's their only recourse of action. I'm not endorsing violence, but I'm saying that we, we may think retaliation is simply an act of violence, but it can be a lot of different things. Um, it took me years not to, uh, to learn not to use violence. Uh, I grew up in a violent context. My neighborhood was violent in the neighborhood I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, my family could be violent. And um, the way that you get respect in contexts like that when someone grieves you is you threaten violence 
and you prove that you are willing to carry it out. And so that's how I grew up. And I, it took me a long time um, to learn not to use violence. Um, and uh, I mean, growing up as a teenager, I've been in more fist fights than I can count. Um, and that was just the world I grew up in. I grew up in a violent world, a violent context. And the people you respected, they weren't doctors and lawyers and entrepreneurs, they were the people who could kill you in your neighborhood. And you wanted to be near those people, you wanted to be friends with those people. And if you were going to achieve, you became one of those people. And so um, that, that's part of my testimony, but I had to learn to move away from that as the gospel of Christ grew more and more in my heart and what it looked like not to commit acts of retaliation. In many parts of the world, people don't have legal recourse. They don't have any other way to sort of uh, get justice, and so they still do threaten or commit acts of violence. Maybe they're developing nations, maybe they're tribal cultures. But the gospel speaks to us with an ethic of love and forgiveness and non-retaliation because we are so wired to do that, aren't we? We want to retaliate. We want to prove to people, we want to show people that they cannot harm us, that they can't cross us, that they can't offend us. And we get that, don't we? No one wants to be abused. No one wants to be grieved. No one wants to be, have someone take advantage of them. And so this is where Biblical Christianity is sort of problematized by living in the world we live in because it's difficult. There's nothing easy about this. And I think as, as time goes on more and more in our culture, uh, we will find that true Christians uh, um, are few and, far in, few and far between in number. Our culture, there was a time where it was beneficial culturally to say you were a Christian and go to church and and things like that. that, that time is evaporating right now in our culture. And so the people who stick around are gonna be those who are the true believers. I, that's, that's my opinion, that's how I'm, that's as, as I watch what's happening in our culture, that's sort of my assessment of it because it is becoming far less advantageous to proclaim the name of Christ in the culture that we live in. So this is what the gospel says, don't be so quick to retaliate in any way. Instead, be a blessing to others. Bless other people. And because often the people that deserve retaliation, you feel deserve retaliation now, God is dealing with. And such were some of you. Thank God that someone didn't retaliate or take vengeance on you when you grieve them, right? Because God was dealing with you. And God is dealing with you. He's dealing with all of us still. <clears throat> So how do we bless? Well, the first, th the first way to bless people is the wise use of our words. Look at Proverbs 15 and 1. Many of you have heard this passage before. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And this is the mystery of Jesus that we're still learning, right? None of us have perfected this. We are learning to follow Christ in this way of suffering. And there's a spectrum of suffering, right? And so we may think it's a small thing, but on some level, it's difficult to embody this, but this is the way of Christ. We are trying to embody Christ's own love. 
and non-retaliation. And here's what's instructive for us, and so pay attention to this point if you haven't paid attention at all so far. <clears throat> Trust me, it, it happens, some, some folks, right? You were, you were up late Saturday night. You're barely staying awake right now. A, a non-retaliation, a, 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 a spirit of non-retaliation is the ethic of the new humanity that will exist in the new heavens and the new earth. Part of what God is preparing for the world is already starting to break into the world that we live in. We know this world is fallen and broken and cold, but what God intends for the world to one day be when the kingdom is fully made manifest is already started to break into the present. And so an ethic of love and non-retaliation is the ethic of the new humanity in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why we pursue it. And then finally, Peter says, this is the good life. This is the true good life, right? Our culture has an idea of what the good life is. You know, and it's not that we would disagree, right? I'd like to buy a yacht and sail the world. And thank God there are people who are able to do that. Uh, but from a spiritual point of view, from the gospel's point of view, from the point of view of the apostle Peter who spent all, of the, all that time with Christ in his earthly ministry, he says, actually, this is the good life. Listen to what it is. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace and pursue it. You control what comes out of your mouth and you're pursuing peace the best you can. This is the good life. This is the true good life because not everybody who sails the world on a yacht embodies this, right? There's the world's idea of the good life. There's God's idea of the good life. Maybe there's some overlap, but this is the good life. It is the love and grace and mercy of God flourishing in a person's heart where you yourself are sort of like a little uh, factory of peace and peace and goodness sort of radiate outward from you. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from seeking deceit. Seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord see. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, what's the update for the 21st century for us? Because nowadays, we, we don't use verbal and audible words. Often, we communicate right, through our computers or our devices. You know, This is how we communicate nowadays. So I think the update for us is um, that we can pursue peace and uh, in those ways as well. In other words, don't be an internet troll. <laughs> Just by a show of hands, who knows what an internet troll is? All right, so <clears throat> how did we get here, right? It's like I, I went to church to hear a sermon and the preacher started talking about inter internet trolls. But I think so much of the way we exhibit Christian character now has moved online. Because so much of the ugliness in our world is now online. And so much of the division that exists in our society is happening online. 
And so what we type into our computers and laptops or on our devices either reflects or doesn't reflect this ethic of Jesus' own heart. So an internet troll is a person who posts inflammatory, insincere, digressive, extraneous, or off-topic messages in an online community with the intent of provoking readers into displaying emotional responses. It's, it's essentially a Molotov cocktail online, right? And so I think in the digital age or dystopia that we, we live in, based on who you're talking to, is this is where the Christian ethic of seeking peace and righteousness often manifests itself. Because we are now more socially isolated. Isn't that ironic, right, for all the social media that exists? Right? We have less actual human interactions because most of our interactions are online. And so I think it's appropriate for us to say, this is also a place where we can be righteous or unrighteous. This is also a place where our lives can or can't please God. And it's important for us to embody that ethic. And here's why I say this, because a few years ago, I had, I had to shut my Facebook down. I just couldn't handle it anymore. It was causing me such stress because... People, even friends I knew, you know, from I grew up with in grade school, they were posting things that I wanted to fire back off with, you know? You know, people post crazy stuff, and they're on one side of an issue, you're on another side of an issue, and I would write things, and later on in the day, regret it, and have anxiety over who would see my incendiary post or interpret it as incendiary in response to someone else, and so I shut down my, my Facebook a few years ago. I'm not saying that, you know, you have to do that. What I'm saying, though, is you have to find... Now, some of you, it's not a temptation at all. You don't care. You've got a Facebook account, you never check it. Instagram, Twitter, whatever. But for other people, for a lot of people, that's where we exhibit Christian character or the opposite of Christian character. And so I think this passage applies for us, modern people living in the digital age, because we can sort of... We can be internet trolls if we're not careful. I was tempted recently to open up like a... I would call it like a burner account just so I could say what I want online, right? You know, like, you know, I don't know, you know, Joe Frizzoli or something, you know, and I get on every, you know, the politics and just fire off, you know, bombs to people. I, I didn't do that, you know, because, you know, people say crazy things. And this is the challenge of Christian living. This is the challenge of following Jesus, right? We want to do those things. I want to do those things, Right? Uh, when the internet first hit the scene in the 90s and everyone was on America Online, you remember that? That's all we had was AOL. And there was that funny noise in the background when you logged on. You young people, you have no idea the suffering we went through. There were terrible times. We waited four minutes to get on the internet. <clears throat> and there was no social media. What they had were chat rooms. So you, if you wanted to talk about classic cars, you wanted to talk about theology, well, I would be on there talking, you know, arguing with people about the Bible. I was, you know, in my late teens, early 20s, or whatever it was at the time. And Maribel, my wife, would come out, and she'd say, it's 3 in the morning. What are you doing? And I, you know, someone's wrong on the Internet. You know, and I'd have this, this glazed look on my face, you know. And, uh, you know, I don't do that anymore. But, you know, I think a lot of people get caught up in that. And um, we can seek and pursue peace as the people of God in any context. And we can also be ugly in any context. And this is the challenge for us, right? Living in such a polarized world, living, in a, living at a time where people have such strong opinions. And I think what it means to reflect Jesus in the 21st century is that as the people of God, we bring a calm and steady hand to every conversation. 
to every situation. We're not pouring fuel on the fire, even though we may inside be tempted to do that because people are crazy. We, they say crazy things, and they do crazy things, and some of the positions people espouse, some, of, some people's political views are evil and wicked, and it evokes a response in us, and that's not wrong in and of itself. But to follow Jesus, to truly pursue the good life, the peaceable kingdom, is to follow Christ in this ethic of speaking peace, not letting wicked things come out of our mouth or our fingertips. And that's a challenge. Because at the heart of all of this is the desire that a watching, unbelieving world that suffers anxiety and is absolutely chaotic would be able to see the gospel of Christ manifest in our lives. That's the calling. That's the Christian calling. It's not to be swept up in all of the hyper-polarized, you know, things out there. It's not to simply go along with the sort of conflagration that's happening in our world right now, but it's to sort of swim upstream. It's to do something different, to go against the grain. And that's difficult. And we need God's help and the Spirit's power to help us do that. And I close, I leave you with this verse from John 20, 21. After Jesus had rose from the dead and all of his disciples were huddled in a little room with the doors locked for fear of the Romans, because that's what the Romans did when they killed some kind of seditious leader as they wiped out his followers as well. And Jesus appears in this room, some of you know the story with the doors being locked, and he says to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me to you, I am sending you into the world. And this is your calling. This is our calling. As the Father sent the Son into the world, Jesus sends us into the world with the same spirit, the same ethic, the same grace, the same mercy, and the same love. Let's pray. Father, touch our hearts now, O oh God, as we try to navigate our lives in a chaotic world, in a society here in the country we live in that is often chaotic, crazy, wicked. Help us not to lose our faith. Help us not to lose our integrity. But help us to follow the way of Jesus. To learn the way of love, peace, of sympathy. To have unity of mind with one another, to live lives of non-retaliation and non-vengeance seeking, that we might be called the children of our Father in heaven. In Christ's name we pray, amen.